Hi, Stanley. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, apologies to our listeners. Uh, we skipped a slot. We do this every two weeks, and it's been a month since our last episode. It hasn't been a month. Okay. Yeah, I guess no, yeah, you're right. We yeah, skipped we one, skipped, so we skipped an entire slot. Oh. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't was... listen, so it's. <laughs> It was beyond our control. Uh, so for this time, we read uh, your pick. I did. Uh, After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division by Samuel Goldman. Uh, tell us about the book, Stably. Well, so how, how to begin? So Sam Goldman as a professor at Georgetown, I believe, mm -hmm. man of the right. And what he tried to do here is provide a very interesting historical recap of like the three main ways that, well, I'm going to say Americans, but really American elites have tried uh. to frame um, American nationalism over the course of our many centuries of, of nationhood and statehood. Um, and then he kind of used that as a springboard to say, it's actually very difficult to do this successfully. And these three ways have all, you know, failed for various reasons. And it doesn't really get into too much of how to be American in an age of division. But anyway, he, he, he posits yeah. that, um, you know, we'll need to kind of grasp and grapple towards a, a new way of being American, um, if that's even possible. Um, after the failure of basically the last of these uh, attempts to forge like an American nationhood. Uh, very good. Um, Is that vague enough? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that, that's, I think that's, that captures it. Uh, one uh, small thing. Uh, he's a professor at George Washington University. Oh wow. my God. So, I did that. I did the thing that all people who yeah. don't live in DC do. At least I didn't I say just, George, George Mason. I just, <laughs> you would not make that mistake. Now uh, I just looked it up. Uh, okay. It, it didn't sound right to me. And uh, yes. Um, so, yeah. So a couple things just because, so I, I read this book a month ago <laughs> and, yeah. and, and under duress, under duress. Uh, <laughs> not under duress, that's the wrong word, but under uh, less than happy circumstances. And, and so two things, one is, does he, so yeah, like you say, the title is Being American in Age of Division. Does he at all talk about that? And then the other thing is he kind of, I'm trying to, as I was re-looking at my notes, uh, he talks about how his, his intent with the book is to, um, you know, go through the different, um, what did you call them, sort of, organizing models of, of American nationhood mm -hmm. and then kind of talk about the future one, but he doesn't really. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't think he says anywhere that he's going to, here's my model, the fourth, <laughs> the fourth <Okay>. turning <laughs> of American, you know, nationhood. And here's my theory of, of what it is. I don't think he ever makes the claim that he'll do that, yeah. but no, he, he, he just kind of, um, what does he do? He kind of gestures in the direction of like, here are some, here are some people who are, who are thinking and writing on this topic, but uh, 
um, as he says in the beginning, he tries to be scholarly about things and not like he's not down in the yeah. in the the partisan gutter as you were a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know, saying like this is the right way of doing it because you know I'm I'm a conservative and therefore blah blah blah. So yeah, he uh, he doesn't really kind of lay out even what his preferred model would be. I don't think. Right. Um, okay, I, I just want to make sure I didn't miss that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that's in there. Um, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the. And this was. I mean, did you previous to reading this book, think of these? As, so how do I put it? So like you know, as I read this book, I'm like, okay, yeah, you're right. Clearly, these are different models. Um, but I never thought of them that way. To me, they were just all kind of smushed together, and kind of, yeah. and I could kind of reconcile them together for myself. I never really thought of them, but as distinct. But yeah, they are totally distinct. Yeah, the same same thing here. Um, and this is kind of uh, actually one of the goals of the book he wrote is I want to, he, he wanted to be more specific and not just have like pretty language and kind of fluffy concepts because those are, those are not actually super useful when you're, when you're, you know, trying to be scholarly and actually say something like coherent and cogent and tractable about an issue. So that's, that was incredibly useful because like you said, and we'll get to the, the three concepts, but they yeah. all like, same thing for me, like they all kind of mash together and it's all just like, oh, this is what it means to be an American. And um, he does a very good job, I think at least of kind of pulling those threads out and showing that, no, they're not really the same at all. And they're almost, like largely in conflict with each other actually. Or at least with, they were when they were kind of developed and and kind of pitted against each other. Yeah. So I, I guess so. I still, I guess the, that's kind of the point is can they be reconciled? And it's funny that I never noticed the tension. Uh, so maybe, that, I don't know, I guess, well, why don't we go through what they are? And by the way, <clears throat> this is be so frustrating for people who are actually listening, but I found the section at the very beginning of the book where I thought he said he was going to lay something out and then I couldn't. So he, let me just quote from him. Sure. Rather than trying to restore an elusive consensus, I propose that we strengthen institutions of contestation. Our problem, in other words, is not that we have forgotten how much Americans have in common, but that we have undermined or abandoned structures and organizations that express and embody disagreement. And then he goes on to talk about political parties, labor unions, religious communities, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. It isn't through their conflict that we will discover the terms on which we can live together. But he doesn't, I, I, did he return to that? I, I don't uh, think he did. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't think he, he doesn't in a, it's not like half of the book. You would think a claim yeah. like that would mean, you know, yeah. I'm gonna handle it in a, in a big big old section. So maybe I don't remember, uh, but I, I don't think he, he makes a big case, big case of it. Nor yeah. does he seem to, because the book is broken into chapters that each dealing with these these uh, kind of ways right. of thinking about nationhood, uh, he doesn't bring like his solution into any of those chapters individually either. So again, maybe maybe I also read it too long yeah, ago yeah. and I don't remember it. Uh, okay, so let's start with so the, the three. Um, uh, what, what would you call them? This is like a New Yorker review. Or you tell an anecdote for the first 
40 percent of the review <laughs> and then you finally get to it uh what does he call them i guess I'll, we'll just say like ways of uh ways of being an american <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so like like uh, national myths right so so okay so let's take a step back what does it mean to be french well it's blood and soil right or german right it's it's the language it's the land the, you know, the territory it's ethnicity right uh we don't have that in the united states <clears throat> um and so what does it mean to be an american so there are three uh modes or myths uh one he calls the new english covenant mm -hmm. uh, the other one he calls the crucible or the melting pot and then what does he call a third one? The chapter creed. title is a warlike creed. So is it just like the American creed? Yeah, like creedal nationalism. Yeah. Uh, so why don't you take the, the English covenant, uh, which, I, you know, I mean, or let me try to summarize it and you tell me if, I'm, if, I, if I got it. Uh, okay, it's, sure. It's basically that um, it's really interesting. So you have the great migration. Is that what they what, what it's called? uh where the pilgrims came over and it was interesting uh between like um uh 1620 and uh you know 1640 and 16 those are the dates he goes yeah yeah between 1620 and 1640 you had about twenty thousand people come over so that's the puritans and 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 their ilk um and then that was it for a long time until until like 1840 where you had a, a, a you know much bigger migration so you you had the big my quote-unquote big migration which is just about twenty thousand people uh come over establish new england and basically it is the puritan protestant culture of new england and that covenant of the new chosen people in uh in, in the uh, new world it's kind of that ethos would become the seed for a new country. Does that make sense? For, for a new national identity would be that Puritan Protestant wasp culture. Yeah, yeah, it's some, basically that, that these, you know, these, the Puritans and their ilk, as we say, you know, they are, they are Protestants, they, but they're like even more Protestant than you. Yep. Uh, so they are having, you know, they're being persecuted by the Church of England, and they want nothing uh, to do with these uh, filthy Anglicans anymore. So they leave and they, you know, have an exodus uh, to the New World, and they settle in New England. And the, the way they envision themselves as is as like the ancient Hebrews, uh, mm -hmm. you know, going on to establish in, in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm sure I'm mangling it, uh, <laughs> but essentially, yeah, this is like a religious, this is a covenant. This is a deal that God has made with them very specifically uh, there to go out and, you know, build a new Jerusalem in, in the new world, a shining city on a hill and all that good stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, it's based because they're Puritans, you know, kind of, I guess, again, I'm going to butcher all of this, like they're Calvinists. So they have a, a conception of what it means to be like a member of the church and also a member of the community um, that, 
is essentially confessional that you have to like swear three times on a Bible and spin around and everyone has to witness your, your kind of entrance into the church. And that's not just a religious thing. That's almost like a civic and social thing. Um, it's really the only way to participate in that society. Um, so in, in that way, like they're trying to separate themselves from like the blood and soil, like you said, I mean, it's not exactly blood and soil because this is the 17th century. So they don't really have nations in the same way that, you know, they had in the 19th century, but they're trying to get away from um, kind of these old world conceptions of what it means to be English or French or whatever. Um, And his point is like, yes, this was attempted. Uh, It's, it's, it was only really possible because it was families that moved to Mm -hmm. New England. Uh, He makes a point of saying that, you know, the climate was pretty harsh, but it was still fruitful. So you could actually, you know, be, be fruitful and multiply. You could, you know, take in only 20,000 people over 20 years, but basically continue to kind of seed the rest of the country with New Englanders uh, for the rest, you know, yeah. the rest of America's existence. Uh, but this whole thing of like a covenant and having a separate type of civilization kind of fell apart almost immediately because it's very hard to maintain like that system uh through the generations like where you you actually scale yeah it doesn't scale and you you know it's one thing for all of these people i mean they gather together for a reason they all believed in this and they all moved but their descendants and like even their children are not necessarily made of the same stock so maybe they weren't so interested in joining the church or weren't even able to join the church because it was a little, you know, somewhat difficult to do it, as you could imagine. So even then the Puritans started saying, well, you know, if you're descendant from a church member or, you know, you could be kind of halvesies. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it went from being a covenant to being based on blood. You know, like if your mommy and daddy were good members of the church, then you were too, more or less. So that's, that's a very different thing than you know, everyone has to make this agreement with the Lord. So his point is like, this started falling apart almost immediately in, in reality. Right. But in rhetoric and in word, because New England was, you know, so intellectual and, you know, wordy and so many of the universities that, you know, we still think of today, like Yale and Harvard, et cetera, were founded in New England. New England, you know, agitators basically were very good at spreading this myth about themselves or not a myth, the story about themselves just throughout the entire country. And at first it was only about new Englanders. <laughs> they were pretty parochial and provincial, but over time, and especially after like the, uh, the French and Indian wars um, and uh, especially the war of independence, this idea of like a covenant that, you know, the, the, the English Puritans made with the Lord more or less kind of became this woolly thing that spread out uh, over to, to encompass all Americans. Right. Um, but of course, then it really became difficult to kind of keep this up because what does a guy, <laughs> some cavalier living in Virginia with slaves have to do with some abolitionist New Englander merchant living in Boston? Uh, so that conception of American nationhood just really started to kind of fall apart just as America became an actual country, right. uh, which started to kind of, you know, it required people to come up with a new story if, if America was to kind of stay together 
uh, as an actual country. So that's that's where like the melting pot yeah. um, started to develop, although it didn't really get that name for like a hundred years. So <clears throat> a couple things. Um, the it's interesting that this covenant idea is separate from blood and soil, but also from uh, an ideological. So let me, here's another quote. Um, covenant theology provides a way of avoiding the abstraction of an ideological or creedal nationalism without moving too far in a direction of blood and soil, right? So it's kind of a way to um, bring, you know, kind of create this synthetic nation, um, w- you know, without having it yet be this, you know, as you say, uh, melting pot or creedal uh, uh, kind of thing. So that was interesting. And then the other thing is, is yeah, despite the fact that it, it kind of fell apart um, almost immediately after it got started, uh, the seeds of it um, are still with us today, yeah. right? We still celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, we still think about um, the Mayflower. We, you know, as kids in school, you learn about the Mayflower and, um, uh, you know, you, you think of a, of America as being descendant from that, from Plymouth Rock and, uh, and all of that. And as you say, a lot of that has to do with just the uh, sort of literary uh, pro, what, what's, <clears throat> prolif, prolificness, prolificity. <laughs> uh, I don't know what it would be. I'm not of, helping you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of, yeah. Of these guys. Um, these guys were just incredibly... Uh, focused on uh, academic uh, uh, achievement, and you know they created Harvard and Yale, and other. Uh, I, I imagine, I guess, when was Princeton founded, um, and all the other ones, uh, uh, Brown, etc. And uh, yeah, the, so it was, it was amazing. He says. Uh, incredible literary productivity uh, in surveying the vast literature of American national identity. It is easy to forget that the so-called great migration involved only about 20,000 people and that New England has been shedding population relative to the rest of the country since the ratification of the constitution, perhaps never before has so much been written by so many about so few. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, you know, this is like the wasp stereotype. I mean, it's more or less gone now. Uh, but I think he mentions elsewhere that this, I mean, this, kind of existed until the middle of the 20th century like that was right. like that is an american right uh like i think imagine? i think of like a george plimpton <laughs> or the bushes right or the bushes uh, yeah yeah like this is yeah like if as a kid you know you grow up what isn't what is the the first american it is like the puritans and their weird hats right um even though like there are I'm not going to get into like like Spanish America, but you know there are people in Virginia whoa, whoa, and elsewhere. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why don't you get to Spanish America? When you think um, of the first Americans, I think of Saint Augustine. I'm thinking of real Americans, Jerry. Uh-huh. Real Americans, <laughs> but exactly right. It's like people don't even yeah. think about that. Um, but even like Anglophone, yeah, it's not. Those weren't the first people here. I mean, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's that's like the great national. Like that's that's one way to build a national myth. Um, what is it Even, like Jamestown, I guess, would be where you would really want to start? I mean, so ignorant of all this stuff, but I mean, it goes back further, right? Like yeah. all these lost colonies and all of that. Um, I mean, they become, they've been coming for a while. and But of course, that one stuck, right? The, they actually succeeded in New England, unlike a lot of the other ones. Um, 
nevertheless, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that like that that view of America, at least that image. And he points this out, like this this conception of nationhood like died a really long time ago, and it basically continued to live in as snobbery, uh-huh. <laughs> as like kind of waspish uh, snobbery, and as kind of like you said these like scholarly academic exercises that i'm not sure who cared about too much but still uh it does seem to have stuck so well and i think it also um how do i put this like i i think it mostly was transmitted to me through public school education right yeah i don't think i would have been exposed to it as much had i not gone through the public school education that i did um, you know, maybe if I had gone to a Catholic school or otherwise been educated some, some other way. Uh, I wonder if it's the same way today, but um, I, I think that is a remnant of, uh, he talks about this as well, um, public school education was a way for wasps to try to assimilate the swarthy Catholics uh, right. <laughs> who came later on. Um, so anyhow, why don't we uh, turn to... Uh, the crucible yeah let's leave these these wasps in the dust so uh, as i mentioned um the the covenant that that whole conception of nationhood really did start to to fall apart and fracture uh kind of the turn of like the 18th to 19th century and um you know people needed basically people needed a reason for people to stay for the americans to stay americans uh, if you want to get like really cynical about it. So these conceptions of a crucible or a melting pot uh, always existed. Uh, and, and again, he makes a point of saying all of these ideas have always, yeah. they, they've all, they, all three have been floating around since the very beginning. So it's not, it's not, none of this is made out of just whole cloth, but um, this idea of a melting pot or a crucible of America creating a new nation and not just English people who happen to live, you know, on the American continent, but, you know, of English and Scottish and German and God forbid, even Russians all coming together and basically intermarrying and creating something called an American, Mm -hmm. uh, which would be like a new man living in a new civilization that that concept started to take hold in the beginning of the 19th century partly or largely driven by the, the massive increase in immigration that started to happen kind of in the middle of the 19th century, where, you know, you can't, you can't pretend that there's some sort of covenant between God and the Puritans when you have like Germans <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and other, other people like from Scandinavia, just coming to America in mass uh, and Irish and obviously the Irish are Catholic. So a new explanation had to be de- provided or developed to, you know, to, to give to people, to, to explain why you, you actually should remain one country as opposed to creating new Germany in, in the Midwest or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the melting pot idea is, <clears throat> see, it's funny. So it's the melting pot, yeah, the melting pot idea. And then the next one we'll talk about is sort of the, the creedal nation. Uh, idea. I find those two to be very um, compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder if, if you agree with that or not. Um, but, uh, but basically he's, you know, he's saying uh, 
how do I put this? Like when I, when I think of, of, of the melting pot, I think of um, the Americans of Western expansion, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And they are, uh, you know, they're coming here to make a life and, and they are being incredibly industrious and going West. And it's all kinds of different people and it makes America, America. Um, yeah, I guess I don't have a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this, you know, and he, he points this out, like it's not just a guy wrote a book called The Melting Pot, although somebody did make, basically yeah. make a play, uh, but that was in the early 20th century. But, you know, th- there were different thinkers and different strands. Um, I need new metaphors. Uh, <laughs> there were, uh, you know, there were different lines of thought that that fed into this melting pot idea. And, you know, one of the more important ones there were, you know, there were basically two big ones. It was westward expansion or yeah. manifest destiny and war, uh, especially the civil war. Right. And, you know, West expansion of the West, it's, you know, you are going into an inhospitable wilderness, essentially full of, you know, Indians, Native Americans that you want to kill. And in return, uh, rightfully, they want to kill you. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you, you can pretend that, you know, you can try to be like Croatian or Sardinian or Bavarian or whatever, uh, as you do that, but it's probably not going to work out very well for you uh, unless you band together with your fellow settlers. And that, that's why it's a crucible. You know, it's not like a necessarily a pleasant experience, but that kind of um, difficult journey and settlement of the American West is what created Americans um, in that context. And then of course there was a civil war and you know how it, it at least allowed like Irish and Germans and other um, ethnicities living in the North to say, you know, we fought for this country. We we're just as American as you are, uh, which I think the wasps very grudgingly accepted. Uh, but, you know, they did accept these ethnic uh, white Europeans as Americans more so after something like the civil war where, you know, obviously you're putting yourself on the line for something like that. Right. Um, and it's, part it's, of, yeah, go well, ahead. I was gonna say, and part, part of what happened and tell me if you agree that this is indeed what happened, but part of what happened is that, uh, you know, an American character emerged, right. A more national American character slowly emerged. And so you have a melting pot, um, or maybe you call it a stew, um, where people assimilate, right? So you have certain things that, um, it's, it's interesting, right? You have certain things that um, are kind of essential, like the English language, um, uh, except, you know, the, it was actually kind of a concerted effort to stamp out the German language. You're right. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, you have kind of these essential things, but as people um, come and uh, add themselves to the stew or, or to the melting pot, um, some of their uh, uh, qualities are also infused into it. But ultimately what you get is, you know, there, there's some pretty big pieces that are always, you know, kind of uh, uh, centrally American. Uh, but you get, you get this basically the stew. <clears throat> is, is that true, do you think? Well, you know, that, I guess that is the idea, right? I mean, yeah. and that's the is problem. That, is that a myth? That, totally a myth or? No, I don't think so. Right. I mean, you know, it's, um, this is such a, I think, a good book because he, he does try to get into the specifics of what people said and like what people right. did. Right. Um, and, you know, for example, like 
you said like the English language, and I don't want to skip too far ahead, but you know, there were, you know, I grew up in Iowa and I guess you don't really think about these things, but like in high school and in, in Urbandale high school mm-hmm. uh, and probably other high schools, you could take Spanish, Japanese or German. Mm-hmm. It's an odd, it's an odd, <laughs> you know, and it, why would that be? Well, it's because, you know, there's like a fuck ton of, of Germans settled in, in the upper Midwest and, you know, the Midwest. So that's probably because of that. And I went to school with a lot of people with like Germanic last names. Um, and actually in the book, he points out that there was some town, New Berlin or something in Iowa had to rename itself Lincoln. Right. Uh, during the first world war or something like that um hot so, dogs yeah hot dogs frankfurters and wieners and stuff so like it was it was not like it was not it was not 100 voluntary for these people from other countries to convert essentially to being americans right they you know set up entire towns and industries and newspapers and schools that were completely you know german speaking and that persisted for a very long time, even as, you know, and, and this played into the problem of like why the, the idea of the crucible didn't work out ultimately. Um, you know, some people were just kind of undigestible and <laughs> it wasn't for like lack of trying uh, on the part of wasps and other Americans. Um, well, but here's would... the thing. So, so, so I guess we've talked about this before, right? So you're an immigrant and I am like basically like one, one click removed from an, from an immigrant. I guess I'm an immigrant from Miami to, uh, to where I am now. To North America. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, you know, you've talked about before on this very podcast about how, you know, you, you come here and uh, you assimilate. Um, you, you know, if you want to fit in, which you do, you learn the rules of baseball and you learn that Michael Jackson is good, never, et cetera. <laughs> never learn the rules of baseball, <laughs> uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's an assimilation of sorts. Uh, I guess, it, it, I mean, it is an assimilation, but it's an assimilation into this weird stew, uh, uh, you know, uh, as I say, and I'm sure, you, you know, you, you haven't given up everything and maybe you've, you've influenced others. Uh, yeah. And I think the difference is right. Coming to America in like the 1990s would, you know, there's no way it's the same as coming to America in the 1890s or like the 1840s. Right. It's, right. it's even, already, even, even since the 1840s. And I guess maybe he talks about actually, actually he mentions um, Norman Podhoritz's uh, book, uh, mm-hmm. which is what's it called? Um, uh, making it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about how, I mean, this book was, was published in the late sixties. Um, and apparently I haven't read it. Um, it's, it's a, a seminal book, some might say, and it's about how, you know, as a, uh, Jewish, uh, son of immigrants, I think, um, really what success was, especially in literary New York for him making it is, was about, approximating as much as possible a wasp uh, elite um but i don't but i i i guess to me that seems to be you know very particular to what his field was um i i mean i don't know i mean i despite learning about thanksgiving in public school um i don't think that that's what assimilation into american culture is is you know primarily or even predominantly about 
being becoming wasp. Well, I mean, those things have been completely removed from being a wasp, right? It's, I mean, that's that's like the story he tells about the 20th century. Like, the, right. we still have these things, but like, I mean, who really? I mean, I'm sure people think about it, right? You see the pictures of the Puritans and the Pilgrims and like the hats, yeah, and the the cornucopia and the Native Americans, and it's like, okay, moving on. Now we're going to watch, you know, football. <laughs> And, and all of that. And, um, but, you know, that's just, I think it's probably a very peculiar American thing that like, yeah, we don't, we've lost that connection to where Thanksgiving came from. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's well, but why not we, just that. I just mean the wasp values, right? Yeah. It's I mean, not exclusively are, that to be being an American is not that. So when you, sure. uh, when you assimilate, you assimilate to this to, to Americanness, which is like this weird thing. Right. And I think it just has to do with like, well, I mean, he was writing about a time that's almost a hundred years ago, basically. I mean, not a, 80, right? 80, yeah. 70 years ago, uh, Norm Pod, um, in a very, very peculiar place, right? Like yeah. intellectual publishing in New York City. Like, yeah, that's, I can imagine that was very waspy still. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I bet if you were, I mean, I have no idea. I'm pulling this completely out of my butt. If you're, if you were maybe trying to make it in like seventies, eighties, New York, I mean, are you trying to write like a wasp or are you trying to write like an Upper East Side Jewish guy? Right. Right. It's like, yep. who's, who, it's, it's Woody Allen and yep. people like that, that, you know, you're trying to emulate and copy, not, you know, Worthington Thurnbuckle the third, <laughs> like whoever that is, right? And Again, George Plimpton, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so, but you know that that could just be like New York City is like it, that. That's a real melting pot right there. And yeah. maybe people, maybe part of the reason we all have a problem with talking about these issues is so many cultural leaders and movers and shakers live in places like New York City. Like literally, it's a port city that's still like 15% Russian and like 20% Jew or something like that. Like that's not normal in America. Uh, so, I mean, th that could be just be, you know, that's obviously a part of it right there. Um, but yeah, like being an immigrant and it could be different because you're a kid, right? Like you want to fit in with other kids. So what do you do? You listen to what they talk about and you pretend you know what the hell college football is or who Michael Jackson is. <laughs> and I think that's pretty normal. I mean, kids just do that normally, even if, you know, they're not immigrants. Right. But, you know, if you live in a place like New York City, like you don't have to, I mean, it's probably not so true anymore. You didn't have to learn English if you were Russian. Now you have relatives who didn't really learn English. They were older, but yeah, they didn't I, learn I, English. When I went to public school, <clears throat> so... I was went to a private school for uh, kindergarten, and uh, by the end of that year, so you know, I was coming on four or five. I guess I was coming on five. I still did not know one word of English, and my parents are like, "Okay, we need to put him in a public school." <laughs> and and so for the first three years in public school, I was taking you know English classes. I, you I you were were you at ESL? Yes. Yeah. I was in the Biff and Tiff. Yeah. <laughs> Biff and Tiff. Reading, uh, reading Rainbow. Is that, before, is that after your time? Oh, no. I, I, I watch a lot of Reading Rainbow. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, you could, you could comfortably, uh, in Miami, you could comfortably 
not learn English. Um, I mean, comfortably is too strong a word. Um, but yeah, you, you could totally get by perfectly fine. Yeah. And I guess the, the, the weird thing for people to consider is like, okay, well, that was maybe large parts of the Midwest, say, in the yeah. In the 19th century, like the second half of the 19th century, you could, I mean, I don't know how true this is, right? But he talks about like the German triangle from like St. Louis to Milwaukee hmm. to Cincinnati. You maybe lived in a town where no English is spoken. Isn't that like people kind of accept that like, yeah, there are neighborhoods in maybe New York or big cities where you can do that. But like, you know, like really like entire parts of the country, you don't speak English. Uh, I, I think it would, I think people don't understand like what a, what a big thing that is. Um, right. And, you know, I mean, that maybe that just goes to show like the, again, getting us back on track, <laughs> the, limits <laughs> of, the limits of the crucible and how that just, you know, that became more and more clear as, you know, more and more people started coming to America from more alien lands, I guess, as the people would consider it like Eastern and Southern Europe. Um, but also any, I don't know what, which way the causality goes, our, our old friends, like, uh, is it Randolph Bourne mm-hmm. and the rest started, you know, you know, talking about, you know, hyphenated Americans and why, you know, it's, it's actually good that, you know, there is no crucible. We don't want something like a melting pot or a crucible. We want a symphony, a symphony. We want, um, you know, what, what's really important is that people agree on like certain, precepts, certain creeds, one could say, and, you know, what language you speak, what religion you practice or don't practice, that stuff is not important. That's not what it means to be an American. It's, you know, what do you believe in? Right. Take it away, Jerry. Well, and, and this is where, um, so one very interesting fact that I learned from this book is that the concept or and the, the phrase founding fathers did not exist until like the 1920s. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is that what comes to take the place uh, of, of, you know, of, of a national organizing principle is, is creedal. And the creed is basically the a Declaration of Independence um, and the ideas therein, the Constitution, um, uh, the uh, Gettysburg Address, uh, later, he would say um, that MLK's I Have a Dream speech is added to that. Um, and so that's what it means to become Amer- to be an American is that you believe in um, equality, rule of law, uh, et cetera. Right. And, you know, he, he, he mentions that in the midst of, I guess, World War I, there was some sort of a contest for... I mean, just that, I guess, right? The American creeds, you were, people were to write a hundred word essay about what it means to be an American and some, right. in some sort of, uh, you know, home cooking, uh, a, congressional, <laughs> a congressional staffer one, which I think is inappropriate. Right. Um, the swamp has always been with us. So, <laughs> and, you know, what he wrote, and again, it's, you know, a hundred words or something was like a mishmash of everything. The Declaration right. of Independence, like Lincoln, the Constitution, a bunch of other stuff. And um, that was what the American creed was. And, um, you know, it, it almost immediately kind of started faltering because, you know, underlying all of this is the fact that, like, nobody's really interested in treating, like, Native Americans or Black people very well. 
um, <laughs> like they're not generally included in the covenant or in the melting pot. I mean, some people do um, consider, you know, basically non-whites as like potential members of the American nation, but most people do not. So, um, you know, the, the, the creed is supposed to kind of undercut that that like, again, it, we're getting to the point where it shouldn't matter what your race or your religion or anything is. But, you know, despite all this, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really work for blacks and like Asians and, and, and other people until you get to World War II. And then after World War II, the, the Cold War uh, against Soviet communism, where it's very hard to kind of tell the rest of the world like yeah you have to you know you should be on our side because we're a free free people that believes in individual rights and and treating everyone fairly while you actually like don't do that for black people or asians or you know i mean hispanics were considered white but still were generally kind of i guess treated as second class citizens so really the reason the creed took off in the, the middle of the 20th century and basically became, as he said, like this is mid-century liberalism. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason it took off was we, the American, again, the elites or whoever needed a way of, you know, matching reality to rhetoric um, and, you know, actually had to start implementing some of these nice sounding words uh, in practice. Um, and, and actually, I mean, it, it literally was part of wartime propaganda. Yes. Right. It, it literally was, um, uh, you know, churned out, um, you know, to create the, to sort of give a reason for why you were fighting the Germans. Right. And he talks about how, you know, the, there was an idea that there are two kinds of nationalism. There is the blood and soil kind of nationalism, which is bad. Uh, those are the Germans and the Japanese. And, there, and then there's the good kind of nationalism, with the, which is creedal. Um, and, and that's what you were fighting for, right? Is that kind of nationalism. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, this is all, not all, but, <laughs> you know, the reason it, it hits those heights again is the war and, you um, you know, it just becomes like the basis of, again, basis of what it means to be an American, but especially what it means to be kind of a liberal intellectual uh, type person in the United States. And, you know, this is more or less what we're taught now, or at least maybe mm -hmm. we're taught until a few years ago. Um, but even so, um, as he points out, the cracks kind of started to develop, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you know, you have the civil rights movement, you have all the different civil rights movements. Um, you have the Vietnam War um, and, and protests and kind of civil disturbances. And, you know, it starts to, you know, put into, it starts to question like what, like what is the, do we actually believe in this creed? Like, is it, was it ever true? Can it be true? Is it all just kind of nonsense? <laughs> and in <laughs> propaganda, and even if it's not, like, do we actually want this? Um, so, you know, like like all the other attempts at unifying Americans, uh, like the covenant and and the, the melting pot, it kind of starts to fall apart. Um, well, and it falls pretty, apart pretty quickly. 
Well, and it fall, but I mean, it it falls apart after uh, the war is over, right? And by war, I mean yeah. the Cold War, right? So he talks about um, sociologist James David Davison Hunter, who apparently revived the term culture war from its Bismarckian origins. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and he says, Hunter contended that the 20th century left Americans unprepared for culture war. The succession of the First World War, Second World War, and Cold War created an expectation for political unity and moral consensus. But the collapse of the Soviet Union removed the pressure from an external adversary that was such a powerful source of internal solidarity. In the aftermath, the nation turned its energies inward and often against itself. And, you know, no surprise that, um, you know, this, this starts, I mean, we, so we've talked about this in other books that we've read. You know, this starts with um, uh, sort of the the simmering of postmodernist thought in the academy in the 70s uh, into, you know, what we have today. <laughs> um, and that coincides, it really explodes after the end of the Cold War. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, like the, uh, all of these, the covenant, the melting, the crucible, the creed, like they, they, they all fall apart as, as right after they win basically yeah uh like at their and i guess that makes sense right it's your keys yep. are where you last left them or something but <laughs> you know it's um you know it, it's at their height and the height doesn't really seem to last that long until it yeah. really starts to decline um and he talks maybe, about i was just gonna say he talks about howard zinn uh and his people's history of the, of the united states as kind of like a good example or you know totem for this uh, idea where you know history for him is uh, oppressor versus oppressed and all of these separate people's histories um, within the United States and so it's all kind of divided right yeah and yeah and like uh, like everything else uh, the end of the Cold War you know just opened opened the floodgates and like you said you know there's not there's no longer the the evil commies uh, threatening everything. So you can just turn inward now. And, you know, I'm not going to be completely dismissive, but you can just kind of engage in silly interest-signing squabbles of, yeah, of the, uh, about everything, I guess. But, the uh, uh, narcissism of small differences. Yeah. Although, like, I, I don't think they're that small, right? Yeah. It's like, it, it does matter. Like, you know, it's a little too flippant to say like, well, you know, it's just, it doesn't really matter whether your country's history is just like total oppression of everybody or a happy-go-lucky story. It's like, well, yeah, it does actually matter. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't it? Uh, it should. Um, so, you know, maybe it's, it's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, but it's relevant. Maybe. Sure. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, I guess I would say it's like, it's a luxury that maybe people should be happy to have, but as he points out, like Americans are not necessarily the most like intellectual people, not that like every, anybody really is, but like, you know, people, he, he makes a point of this later in the book that Americans embrace and embrace these things without really, you know, they don't, Americans don't think through it, right. There's no philosophical basis for like a normal person's mm-hmm. embrace of mm-hmm. the creed, right. They have not read, John Locke and you know the collected speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. to arrive at this point it is just something that they believe in so you know when you have people like that um, I think it's kind of it's kind of inevitable that you're going to have 
like these crazy eruptions and <laughs> and and fights over you know what 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 kind of programming you're going to insert into people's brains right um yeah. So this is where the book kind of, I mean, so this, we should state, this is a very, very short book. It's like 140 pages. You probably could have read it in the time you've listened to this. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so this is where the book is. So again, I, I like this book. I thought it was very good. I learned a lot. Um, but this is where it's a little unsatisfying and totally my fault that it's unsatisfying because it's all about my expectations, not about what he was setting out to write. Mm -hmm. But I wish... You kind of feel like, okay, so so now we're seemingly on the cusp of something like like probably probably a, a precipice is a better way to think about it. <laughs> okay. Um, and so you would think he would give you a peek into how things could be reconciled or what could come next, but he doesn't. Um, and I, so I, I've scrolled down to like the end of my notes and I have highlighted um this might well be the last sentence in the book. I don't know if, if it actually is, but he says, to conclude, I can only repeat that this dilemma is nothing new. An unwieldy combination of external sovereignty and internal diversity was the original meaning of the motto, e pluribus unum. You might even say that's what America is all about. And so... That is, the, yes, that is, those are the last... Those are the last words. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, okay, um. So now, so I guess the question is, first of all, is there any hope, uh, you know, being a Gen Xer, I, uh, you know, that grew up during, you know, Reagan, Bush, uh, I kind of like the creedal uh, nation. And I think it's totally, you know, especially given, you know, uh, my background, I think it's very compatible with a melting pot. Right. I don't think I think you can have I think those two things are, are totally reconcilable um, and, and good myths if, if they are myths. Uh, so I guess my question is, is it totally irredeemable? And what do you think is next if it is? Well, you know, he, he does make a point that national myth making, you know, it's kind of. Um, has massive problems because yeah. there's a lot of selective remembering and a lot of selective forgetting. Right. And, you know, there is no, well, unless you live like in a totalitarian state, there is no referee that tells you what is correct and what is incorrect. So, you know, this is a fight. It's, it's a process and, you know, it's going to be fraught because, you know, people disagree, especially in a country like America. Um, well, and, and I'll say that it's going to be, Nothing like, I mean, this is um, no grand thing to say, but it's going to be nothing like it was before or like it's been before because we don't have the same media environment that we once had. Right, sure. Right? And so it's going to be much more fraught and it's not going to be mediated uh, in, in any controlled way. It's going to be a crazy culture war. Yeah, so I think... Sure. Uh, barring some sort of unforeseen thing, yeah. like cultural right-wingers getting their act together, which will never happen. <laughs> so um, what I think, I think it will stay, you know, like a creedal nation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the creed is going to change. Yeah. Um, I think it will become more like 
like the cultural left wants, not completely because I don't think something like that is sustainable. Right. And most people don't want it, but it will become the happy stories that people tell themselves are going to be infused with all sorts of like, let I me mean, to be blunt, like anti-white, uh, you know, themes. So I, I just think that's, but, that's, what that's we'll... but, but I don't know. That's problematic in a country that is majority white or at least, pl- 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 I mean, first of all, pl- certainly plurality, plurality white. Yeah. And I think increasingly majority white, d- despite what people think, right. For, for, for reasons that you can go listen to the episode on uh, from Eric Coffin. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, again, I don't <laughs> like, like the point of these myths is, is to be unified, right. Is to say, well, what is the, you know, what undergirds a nation? And if you have stories that are divisive, right, in a million different ways, uh, I, I don't see how that really can become a creed that any large number of people can can use as you know the the undergirding for for a nation. Yeah. So I you know I don't think it will be as like toxic or yeah. a- aggressively obnoxious as some. Uh, woke hard as I'll, as I'll call them on Twitter, but it will be more infused with that sort of thing. I mean, look, it already is, Um, you know, you have people at national review and other right-wing places, just like slurping up people like Martin Luther King Jr. And all the rest who they would probably never touch with a 10 foot pole uh, when he was still alive. So like these sorts of things just happen. Right. So like you, like you said, sometime and offline conversations like he will be mlk will become the patron saint of right-wingers oh totally but and, i think but, I, but but again it's selective remembering selective forgetting it won't be mlk jr the way everything he ever said right it sure won't be no him, you know it won't be the uh really left-wing labor organizer it'll be no, no. i have a dream which is and, and i have a dream was a was a speech that he wrote with a very particular uh audience in mind and totally reconcilable with you know the rest of it yeah so i mean look i don't think like the final the final solution has been reached about like what it means to be an american i just think like i think this is like the next the fourth turning the next step (laughs) is going to be it's i think it will be creedal uh it's going to be way more focused on hyphenated americans and all the rest i I don't think it's very sustainable i just think like that's where it will go and people will be kind of more or less fine with it. Um, It'll uh, be infused with um, original sin. Yeah, all yeah. you know, it's going to be infused with all that stuff. Like, I don't know how long people will continue to claim that they're white. Um, you know, I think that number will continue to fall. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like, I haven't read the stories about the latest census or all the intricacies of what it means, but, you know, it seems like people who identify as white fell well, and maybe yeah. that's just an artifact of how they, how they designed the census. I have no idea. I'm not an expert right? <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, you could see uh, some sort of new creed develop, which is, you know, we are all about the rainbow, right? Not, not like the gay rights flag or anything like that, but just like, you know, we contain multitudes, you know, like when I was growing up, the discussion was like, what was it? Is it uh, a stew or a salad? Right. 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 This, the, the, that was the, the whole multicultural debate. If you want to cast your mind back to the late nineties, yeah. um, you know, so I think the, those people have won 
And that's what it's going to be for, you know, a generation or two. I mean, the cracks are obviously already there, but they were for all the other conceptions of American nationhood. So, you know, I think it'll be just kind of lukewarm, multicultural, liberal, uh, you know, garbage. Like that's, that's what it will be, right? You know, more or less. Um, so I, I think that's what people have to look forward to. I, you know, it probably won't last very long or sustain itself because it's just full of so many like contradictions and, and like more or less is completely brain dead, but uh, <laughs> that, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's what we got to look forward to uh, personally, I think. Um, but, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe it's well, just, I, too- I don't know that I'm right about anything. I, I, Cause I, sure. I don't think I've put forward an idea. Yeah. I mean, that's just where I see things going, right? This is like, this is what kids, this is what kids learn. And like, that's, that's kind of how you do it. It's you teach children in schools, what, what, what to think. And that's what they will think. Um, In the same way that we all absorbed Thanksgiving and all the rest, like, like, have you ever been to Boston? <laughs> I've never been to Mass. Like, I guess I have been to Massachusetts. We've been to Boston together. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like, I've never been to Plymouth Rock. I, I, you know, all of these things are just things that you learn in school. And yeah. they will, kids will learn different things in school. It won't be like the Marxist version of America because that's going too far. Um, I think what we're witnessing now is kind of that, that fight, that grappling over what is going to be taught. And it will be somewhere in the middle. It will be instead of you know talking about slavery for 10% of the time it will be 50% of the time which is like probably too much but that's just where it, that's where it will go and other things will be forgotten and you know new things will be remembered and uh, you know that's how it'll go i don't know where it, <laughs> i don't know what the fifth turning is right uh, hopefully it's not the new new ku klux klan um, or anything like that but you know um, but you can't rule it out no, you can't rule it out. And I don't think it's coming back. I mean, there's like no indication of that happening, uh, luckily. So uh, luckily, I will add. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where I think things are going. Um, you know, obviously, like we're speaking on the 22nd of August, 2021. We're running away from Afghanistan with our tail between our legs. So, you know, if this is a signal that America you know, is even more withdrawing from the world, you know, like the Cold War was one thing, uh, and this could be another another situation where people focus even more and more on kind of domestic culture war nonsense. Yeah. Um, so it could become even crazier um, going forward. Um, so I guess so, that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah, and then the fifth turning will be when World War Three draws us back out. Oh, great! Fantastic. <clears throat> All right. Well, did we do it? Did we figure it out? No. no. <laughs> uh, uh, anything else you want to say about the book? No, um, I, I enjoyed it. It, it is short, but, yeah. um, you know, if, and this, this could be why he didn't feel comfortable kind of getting into what the next na- nationalism will look like. I wonder it, if he set out, if, if he started, when he started writing the book, he thought mm-hmm. he might have that chapter yeah. and then decided not to okay i feel like it's going there and yes. then and then it doesn't uh and maybe we can ask him uh sure uh, no and that, w- that would have been interesting i know like you have been big on the death of political parties is not good for yeah. you know like america um and you know 
it's not just political parties. It's sure. it's, it's anywhere. Every, yeah, everything. Yeah. Well, well, the death of everything <laughs> is bad, but no, it's, it's just the, <laughs> the death of private spaces where um, compromise can be made, right? And where you can have uh, compromise within groups, and then you can have competition between groups. Um, and yeah, he kind of hints at that, but I don't see how that's coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult. And again, it's, it's kind of the, the woke post liberal leftist moment. You, you can't have anything. It's basically like, we're just approaching fascism. If you ask me, it's like nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. It's, um, you know, you, you, yeah, nothing can be uh, done without pre-approval basically. So that's a huge problem because, um, I don't trust any of these people left, right, or center uh, to, to not screw things up uh, in that way. So, it, you know, it's, it's a huge problem. And maybe that's why he didn't want to address it. But what I was going to say is uh, what I appreciate is he, he got, unlike what we're doing now, he got specific right. <laughs> with, uh, with the history of, of these, of these uh, national, like nationalist myths, I guess. I don't know if that's the right word for it. So that was, I appreciated that because he, he, he purposely stayed away from kind of woolly, woolly language and feel good stories. Um, so that was much appreciated. Uh, good read, short read. Uh, it would, yeah, I, I'd be more than happy to have read 30 more pages if, um, if he kind of got into, you know, how to, how to pull us back from this brink, this precipice. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you'd recommend it? Uh, I would, I would. I would as well. Um, okay, well, next time, uh, my pick, uh, On Decline, Stagnation, Nostalgia, and Why Every Year is the Worst One Ever by Andrew Potter. And uh, this is also a short book. I think it's like 120, 130 pages, uh, loving these Kindle single type things. Um and this is by one of the co-authors. This is our first repeat, I think, uh, repeat author on, on the podcast. This is one of the co-authors of, remind me, Stanley, uh, The Nation of Rebels. Right. Which is the AKA book about, Rebel Cell. Rebel Cell, <laughs> which is the book about consumerism, but, but really more than that. Um, and uh, I'll hint to say that because it's so short, I've already read it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it, I downloaded it on Tuesday. It's Sunday. I finished it today. And uh, uh, it's great. I'm going to reread it probably before the next time we talk about it. And I think it actually, uh, I think it fits, it fits very well with this book um, because it's kind of forward looking and uh it's not very cheery <laughs> oh good yeah, yeah good so does it answer all of our questions already in the negative <laughs> uh it's not a it, trend is not good okay trend okay. line is not not great okay all right all right stably i guess that's it yep all right see you next time see you see you next time <laughs>